0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at everyday savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job, and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Let's say you just bought a house.
1: This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio.
2: This place is an insane asylum in
3: the swamp. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome! What an incredible weekend in the swamp, Alan! I didn't see it coming. You didn't see it coming. What? Did we just witness on Saturday? Well, I think we witnessed the Gators, as you would
4: say, destroying Ole misses souls in the process. That was one of the more impressive performances I've ever seen by any Gator team. And it came out of, I wouldn't say nowhere, but when we were making our predictions, I think we thought, well, there's a chance we could win. I think the percentage of us blowing them out was pretty low. But what we saw there was a flawless victory, I would say. How did that happen, James? How did we
1: arrive here? I don't. I don't know. I sit here almost in, in in stunned, speechless silence, like thinking back to my wonderful memories of the game. But obviously, we we alluded to this a lot. You know, if you go back and you listen to our previous podcast, we obviously from the beginning have been very high on Will Greer. Will Greer, exceptional game, and we'll dive into this as the show goes on. We also talked a lot about our strengths of the team. We talked about question marks other teams had. So when you look at the culmination of it all, the reality was we said in the beginning of the year, I actually had picked this to be a win for us against Old Miss and then flopped because I said, Hey, Old Miss has question marks. So do we. But certainly we felt like we controlled the Kentucky game. We felt like we controlled the ECU game. We felt like the Tennessee game was really weird. So in a weird way, we felt like we could have been beating these teams by more, but we somehow put together what I thought was the greatest first half in all Of Gator football that I have witnessed. You know, I I didn't get into UF until the year 2000. That's the year my Gator fandom really began. I've never seen a finer first half of football in my Gator life.
4: Yeah, almost perfect on offense and on defense. And even the special teams we were worrying about, uh, other than a botched, you know, extra point, I mean, good kick coverage, good punt coverage, although. You know, we didn't punt that often, but everybody executed well. And I think this is the thing that I took away from the Tennessee game and the Kentucky game. We were a few moments, a few plays, a little more consistency, a little more understanding, either whether it's schematically or what each person is supposed to be doing, from playing a lot better. And they put it all together in one game. And uh, gosh, Ole Miss looked like they didn't even belong on the same field. We were crushing them.
1: Yeah, and maybe they don't because I think if you play the game ten times now, it's hard not to think that we win that game eight or nine or even ten times out of ten. I mean, they were vastly inferior, and some fun notes from the game is Wilger had such a good first half. He's the first Gator quarterback since Chris Leak in two thousand and five to throw for four touchdown passes, which is which is up there. You know, it's been yeah. ten years, and it's the first time, and this stat's going to really surprise you. It's the first time since nineteen ninety nine. That we have beaten a team ranked as highly as old miss in the swamp and 1999 was the game we played obviously like we mentioned earlier against Tennessee so it's kind of funny how these things are wrapping in together yeah. this team really accomplished something it's you know a five and0 start which doesn't happen that often either if you look as a gator fan we're not five and0 all that often uh, you know McElwain had done something that no other gator coach has done which is go 5 and0 in his first year so just a lot of amazing things happened on Saturday
4: for sure and Impressive on every level. Let's talk a little bit about how the Gators were actually able to accomplish this. Maybe some of the nuts and bolts. Talk about the execution on offense. Uh, Defensively,
1: what did we do that allowed us to shut them down so thoroughly? I thought mainly we got incredible pressure with our defensive front four. We actually didn't have to blitz a lot. and um, You just kind of found yourself in the beginning of the game thinking that we knew the snap count. I think we probably did. You know, this hasn't been confirmed, but we jumped off sides a few times as as the game went on, which I think was sort of a tip of the hat so that the line was jumping the snap count. Um, you and I talked in the stadium that as the game's going on, you know, if you run a spread option offense, you run a Chip Kelly style no huddle, very quick offense. Your your audible calls and your line calls are very simple. You don't have a very complicated because you're trying to go fast. Because you're trying to go fast, and I think we were on to something. I think our film study during the week must have been absolutely incredible because I mean, all four guys were just getting in every single time and we played fantastic at the linebacker spot. I thought Morrison really stepped up his game. We've been kind of dogging him as this year went on. Uh, Our safeties didn't really even have to do a whole lot, and I loved how we continued to put Marcus May on the line. We talked about that. We said, hey, look, I think we found something with Marcus May playing really close to the line of scrimmage, and he did. He spent most of the game as either a nickelback or a guy that was within five to six yards of the line of scrimmage, just wreaking havoc. Uh, The guy really has a knack for that. So defensively we said last week on the podcast I said we needed to hold them to less than 350 yards You know, really with 7 or 8 minutes left in the game they were at less than 275 picked up some garbage yards to finish with 328 and the defense played like we needed them to play, we needed them to be the strength of our team and the offense of course played incredible but the defense really played lights out and that's what both of us said had to happen what were some of your thoughts as to how we were able to execute this and win this game? So we kind of alluded to this last week but and we
4: didn't, I don't know if we maybe believed it, but the style of offense they run, that kind of spread, tempo, they're not great at just handing the ball and running down your throat, kind of plays into our hands and our strengths. Uh, Where we want to run that nickel, five defensive backs, and we were able to really own them at the line of scrimmage with just our front four, like you said. Now, they're missing some offensive linemen. That really helped us. You know, no Laramie Tunsil there, all everything left tackle. And they... Couldn't get anything going. I mean, McAllister, Bullard, every single one of these guys was living in the backfield. They played phenomenally well. And so a team like Ole Miss, who when I say tempo, they want to get up to line, run a play, run a play, get on this roll like or you might see Oregon do, but they had so many negative plays. They were always behind on down and distance. They couldn't keep rolling. They had to stop, regroup. What are we doing here? And I think the fact that we got so much pressure, so many tackles for loss, um, so many sacks, you know, incompletions on first down because they were pressured. that never allowed them to get rolling. Uh, so great job by defense, and I think it helped that Ole Miss, you know, couldn't turn the corner and you know try to run the ball out of and run us out of that
1: nickel. Yeah, and they really had a nightmare start. I mean, they seemed inadequately prepared for the environment they were going to walk into. And I have certainly been someone over the years that has really played down the Swamp's appeal and power. You know, I've felt like it's just gone downhill in the past five, six, seven, even eight years, really. Even during the end of the Urban Meyer years, it really wasn't necessarily a hostile place to play. I thought all that changed, and I know we'll talk more about that as this show goes on, but they were not ready for it. They weren't going with a... a, um, a silent snap count, which blew my mind. I remember watching the first drive and thinking, I can't believe that Chad Kelly is on the line verbally audibling to each individual lineman. Mm -hmm. And I know Hugh Freeze said after the game that they were not ready for the environment. He mentioned the environment at least six times in his presser. And they weren't weren't ready for that. I guess they thought playing at Alabama would prepare them for playing at Florida. And it was clear that they just were not ready, um, which I think really played into our hand. Of course, they gave us a gift of a fumble in the second drive, which we then capitalized on. We talked a lot about not having cheap points last week. Now, you know, we got no cheap points from us. However, we we took cheap points from them. Yes,
4: yes. And, a lot of them. and
1: that was great. I mean, that's short fields. You know, they constantly had to go all the way down the field uh, with our solid special teams, which was a great improvement from the week before. And we just made it really impossible for them to win that game. They would have had to continually drive all the way down the field to get their points in an environment they weren't ready for. And uh, they couldn't. You know, they couldn't really even get their all-world receiver going in the game. And he wasn't even really guarded by Vernon Hargraves too often. They just couldn't even get on the ball. Yeah, interesting that the coaches did that. We looked at this over and over again.
4: Vern was rarely opposite Treadwell. It seemed like they tried to move Treadwell opposite of Vern. And they just, we played our corners on sides. You know, like, Vern's going to play the left and whoever else is going to play the right. And I think what their thought was potentially, you know, let's bracket Treadwell... And let's leave Vern one on one on the other guy and let him handle his business. And they did that really well. Uh, So we talked a lot about the defense. They did really well, especially that goal line stand. That was incredible. You know, the B in the second half, where the, you know, cool, Ole Miss, we'll give you a field goal if you want to take 10 minutes to drive down. We saw them execute. And the thing that we've been talking about a bunch is tackling and much improved from the defense here. I don't know if this is a one-week aberration, but they tackled really well for the most part. And a guy, like you said, Antonio Morrison, who seemed not his normal self. Like if he got caught out in space, he looked at a loss. You saw that Dobbs, you know, spin move on him last week that left him looking foolish. And I gotta give the guy credit, he played incredibly well. He was in the right spot, you know, uh, filling gaps, making sure tackles. So that was a big improvement for us too.
1: Huge improvement. I thought it was his best game as a Gator. And and the defense, obviously, it was one of the best performances I've seen in a long time. They were utterly dominant. Ole Miss did wind up having a lot of yards on the stat sheet. They wound up having a similar time of possession to us. But that was really more indicative of the fact that they had a long field. And they sucked up all the all the clock in the second half, which is exactly what you want to do with a lead. And that's one of the things that we should talk about is the, the coaching differences that came out of this game. We had a big lead. I know that 25 nothing. I still thought to myself, hmm, this is interesting. We could still collapse. We are a really young team in the second half, and I really wanted to watch how we would call plays. And true to McElwain's nature, we stayed very balanced. Yeah, we ran the ball, but we actually threw as many passes as we did uh, runs until the game was really over late in the fourth. Uh, we threw a deep ball to Fullwood that should have really been completed, and, and that was a very aggressive play call at that time. And I think you saw that oldness Miss really never had a clue what we were running on offense. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Wilger can complete any pass he wants on the field. He threw some of the best passes I've seen a Gator quarterback throw in a long time, and he throws the ball on time. The pass to Brendan Powell sticks out in my mind. If you watch that on film, there's a very small window there. There's a linebacker sliding underneath. You've got a nickelback covering Powell. If Wilger does not throw that ball at that exact moment, it's incomplete. If he throws it a step later, it could be a pick. But because he throws it right then, Pal catches this ball, and the next thing you know, it's touchdown. And, and Greer did that countless times in that game where he's hitting guys right when they're coming out of their break, and that speaks to McIlwain's attention to detail. It speaks to how well he's teaching these players to have attention to detail. And, and the biggest thing for me of, like, a, like create a 30,000-foot view impression is for the past five years as Gator fans, we've come to believe that our team won't improve. They've sort of been the same team throughout the entire year. And one of the most shocking things about this, probably for all of us, is that we were there at the game on Saturday and there was drastic improvement. And we're not used to seeing that. We're not just we're just not used to seeing our teams get better. And that's the most encouraging thing, is we are getting better each and every week. Will we play this way every week? I doubt it. You can't be that high all the time, but certainly my big takeaway is that the coaching is not only making a difference, but it's making a huge difference. And that is the hallmark of any good football coaches. They get more out of their players from week to week. Things get cleaned up, things get better, the quarterback gets better. And that was all on display in the swamp on both sides of the ball. Agreed, and I, I think you hit right on it with
4: the second half. Thought that was handled almost perfectly. Um, Ole Miss made some mistakes that allow us to not have to deal with some potential situations, but just some smart things like let's take, let's run some more of the clock out of every possession. But we're still going to be aggressive and throw the ball. We're not going to just sit on this lead. You know, someone made the comment, you know, not to keep. You know, kicking Muschamp while he's down, but it's like when we got that 13-0 lead it was like, well, that's good enough. Let's sit on this and try to hold on to it. And you know we stayed very aggressive in the first half and in the second half. Um, you talked about Greer. I love the way he we talked about him being decisive and confident. He looked fantastic. Uh, and a guy we've really you know kind of been harsh on in this podcast is Demarcus Robinson. He looked phenomenal. This is the guy we want to see making plays down the field making difficult catches, using his large frame to shield people. uh,
1: Had some really big plays for this offense. So talk about him and maybe your favorite position group, the tight ends. Yeah, huge, huge plays from DeMarcus. He still continues to dance around, which will continue to drive me and McIlwain crazy each week. I love how McElwain will always call him out on that. Uh, I think right after the game ended, they asked him about him, and he, he mentioned the same thing. Hey, you know, if we can get him to run north-south, <laughs> things will be great. But all in all, he I felt like he finished all of his routes. Yeah. We talked a lot about that. That game He finished every route. Um, obviously, the <laughs> what I think is going to be a highlight in all of our minds now is Greer with, you know, again, the all-world Kimdichie taking him to the turf, throwing this incredible pass to a guy who didn't quit on his route. Robinson in the Tennessee game, he probably stops halfway through that route, and he's not there to catch that pass. And in this one, he charged all the way through it, made the catch. So he was he was fantastic. I think he will clean up his uh, his bubble screen running. Of course, he does great things, but I think if he learns to make one move and then go, it will be better. Uh, and and that was vast improvement. The tight ends, we've talked about it and talked about it. I love the tight end position. It is my favorite schematic advantage in the offense. There's a reason why Belichick of the NFL loves it. I love that we are utilizing it the way that we are. Big game from Jake McGee. Huge game from Jake McGee. It's easy, easy throws for Will Greer. We had a third down in our own end early in the game that we hit to uh, to Goolsby, and it's simple, simple throws. They motion him across the line. They wind up having him on a linebacker. It's just a great matchup. You can win all over the field, and McGee obviously catches every single ball thrown to him. I mean, the guy's big hands, downs, third downs, oh, everything. The guy's hands are like stickum. Just. We are very dangerous because you can never know what we're going to do. I mean, think, of, think put yourself in the, in the mind of a defensive coordinator and you have Brandon Powell who gets motioned out into the slot. You also then in front of him are going to have any combination of any one of our receivers. Could be Robinson, could be Fullwood, could be Callaway. And then couple that with the fact that on either end of the line, you're going to have either Jake McGee or Goolsby. And think of how you're going to defend that. I mean, what what are you going to do? I mean, you have to wind up being spread out. You have to wind up playing a lot of nickel. And we're looking for the one advantage that we have on you, and a lot of it's generated by motion. We don't just simply line up and snap the ball. We start in one formation, motion over to another one, and we expose your weakness. And Will Greer is just pulling the trigger to the right guy virtually every single time. And you just don't see freshmen display that kind of football IQ. We've talked about it a lot. It makes me really excited to see it happening because – It wasn't necessarily obvious to everyone at the beginning. So we could go on and on and on about that. But ultimately, the one thing that really allowed this to happen on the offense was the play of the offensive line.
4: We've tracked this unit's growth each week, and I just want to say I'm shocked at how well they played against a really talented front four from Ole Miss. I don't remember Will being in pressure all that often, like maybe just a handful of plays And those guys did so well. Will did a great job of maybe hanging in just one second longer and not running is what McElwain wanted him to do. Those guys gave him the time he needed. Even I had visions of Kim Dietschy slashing through our offensive line and just breaking up, you know, handoffs and like sacking Will and, you know, tackles for loss. And we really kept him at bay. You didn't hear his name called that often. Those guys did. They deserve all the credit this week. We played a bunch of different guys up front, and they all did really well. I can't say enough about how pleased I am with their development. I mean, uh, someone mentioned our position coach Summers, you know, the offensive line coach, and he what a phenomenal job of taking just a hot mess of a unit and turning them into something that you know can be uh, set up against you know a top notch defensive line and hold
1: their own. We're playing three freshmen on the line. We have the fourth heaviest line in either the college or the NFL landscape, which is an interesting little tidbit. So these are big boys, and they're moving their feet well. Uh, we ran some rather, and you don't really use the word exotic with O-line, but we really did run some rather exotic O-line blocking schemes that worked very well. Old Miss blitzed us a ton. They like to blitz, and they blitzed us even more than they normally blitz. And Will Greer was doing his best Tom Brady impression. You yeah. know, in the NFL, you don't blitz Tom Brady. He'll just he'll murder you. He'll make you pay. That's exactly what Greer did. I mean, they, they didn't have enough defenders back there. So when we completed passes, they were big plays. Old Miss hadn't allowed any plays above 20 yards. I think they allowed five or six in this game on Saturday. And none of that's possible without the O-line taking on what Ole Miss threw was a variety of blitzes, strong side, weak side, delayed stunts. All the things that have been getting to us seemingly didn't get to us at all in this game. Which was impressive because it wasn't like we really ran the ball tremendously well. We were just effective, well enough, but it wasn't like we're gouging them to where they're worried no. about the run. It, it, was, it was rather, quote-unquote, predictable pass-downs. And we were just beating them on the line of scrimmage with the offense. And we were also beating them on the line of scrimmage on the other side of the ball with the defense. All in all, like we said, it's one of the best games I've ever seen a Gator football team play I was privileged to be there to watch it. It's really exciting for the future because our team is so young. It's almost impossible to believe that this happened. It's one of the reasons why we jumped so much in the polls, right? Third largest jump in the, in the AP poll ever from 25 to uh, you know, 12 or 11, depending on which poll you're looking at. So a lot of great things are happening, obviously, in Gainesville. One of the things we talked about and should probably talk a little about now is the Swamp. What were your thoughts on the Swamp on Saturday night? It was a fun place to be. I was so
4: thankful that I got to be there. You know, we had we were, you know, have seats pretty close to the field this week. And looking back, and the student section looked full, and I was a little nervous uh, whether it would fill up. And you know, a ton of, um, you know, mistakes by Ole Miss or timeouts that the crowd caused. I think and. Like you said, gave him a really difficult time. I, mean, I think Vern said that it was the loudest he's ever heard the Swamp. Um, that was a really exciting to be environment, environment to be in, a place to be in. And if this can turn into a place, like you said, not just a, like, you know, kind of a difficult place to play in, but like an exceptionally hostile environment, then that's going to bode well for this team.
1: Yeah, I thought that it was the best swamp atmosphere since the Steve Spurrier days. I thought it was better than the urban days, certainly better than anything Muschamp throughout there, and, and better than the Zook days. It felt like a Steve Spurrier-style, maybe late 90s, uh, early 2000s swamp atmosphere. It was rowdy. People stayed late. You know the stadium wasn't full, but everyone that was there, there was just an incredible buzz in the air. That has not been there in a long time. The noise was consistent. Mm-hmm. It was persistent. It it drove old Miss crazy. And I think they probably got on the bus and got on the airplane and thought to themselves, I'm really glad I don't have to play here for a while because I have to imagine the crowd noise was just rattling around in their brains as they tried to process what just happened to them. I and mean, it was it was what makes the swamp so magical. And if you couldn't be there and if you weren't in attendance, uh it, it was it was just a, a wonderful night that McIlwain commented on. It was a special night, and, and I hope to watch it continue, as you know we're away from the swamp now for a while. So hopefully we have a great October here, which is going to be a gauntlet that we have to go through, and we return to the swamp being what it once was, which just really brought a big smile to my face.
4: So we I've talked about this being a flawless victory, but we do have a few things we probably need to work on. Um, you know this might be nitpicking a little bit, but if you were to look at the game and you're a coach, of course they want improvement in every game. What What would you comment on as ways still for the Gators Gators team to improve?
1: I would like to improve the refereeing. (laughs) Good luck. Yeah, I don't know what's going on this year, but, I mean, two of maybe the the worst no-calls I've seen 25 feet away from the actual play happening, with the refs standing there looking at it, with the body slam of Demarcus Robinson, then followed by the textbook definition of pass interference – in which neither ref even so much as reaches for the yellow hanky. So that would be something. Maybe send videos, write letters, you know, let's let's get let's fix that. If the game gets close, that'll hurt us. But us you know, a few things that stuck out that stood out to me are gonna be the zone read. You know, we talked about it last week, and uh, we're still not good at it. I mean no. they I don't the, know why either. Seems no, like
4: we should be. We Maybe. can't
1: we can't stop it. I mean, Chad Kelly, I don't know how many rushing yards he finished with in the game. I don't have the statue right in front of me, but Most of their damage was done on on the zone read. I mean, Mm -hmm. the quarterback keeping the ball on the zone read, it's like we have no idea what we're doing. And, And, you know, on film, it's not one thing. Occasionally, it'll be the defensive end that pinches in too much. Occasionally, it's the defensive tackle that gets too aggressive getting up the field. But it's not like it's one consistent thing. It's several things at the line that are happening. And we are being punished by the zone read. The good thing is we don't really play another zone read team Per se, we play some power teams, which we're going to have to see how we do against them, but we can't stop the zone read. And Nothing convinced me in this game that we could here either. We proved we could stop a spread offense that wants to pass the ball a lot. That we yeah. did, but we, we couldn't stop the zone read. So we're going to need to get better. they got to look at film. they got to clean that up. Uh, that's a weakness right now for us. I think other teams will probably even throw that in to, to try to get us because we're struggling so much. What are what are a few of the things you saw that we need to work on? Uh,
4: well, the thing that drives me crazy with coaching philosophy was our chasing those points after we missed the first extra point. And I don't understand why we just don't pick up a few points. I know the chart says differently, but until a late game fourth quarter situation, you don't know how the game's going to go. Keep picking up the points. Uh, We lost out on two extra points because we didn't kick them. And because we were chasing that first one from the beginning. And so that point I would have loved for us just to go after an extra point here or there. And then... This was a small thing. This didn't actually hurt us in the game, but it was disconcerting. There were a ton of bad snaps from Cameron Dillard where either Wilger had to jump for them or that maybe slowed a running play or one that you know he had to recover a fumble, essentially. Um, that could have been enormous. We saw some bad snaps really hurt Ole Miss. So that's got to get cleaned up. And that's the thing that shouldn't be a common occurrence. And, you know, One bad snap every once in a while is like a human error, but he was having... Re- a really tough time getting that back there, and that's got to be cleaned up.
1: Yeah, the snaps, we were kind of looking at each other through the whole game, just waiting for something disastrous to happen. I, I imagine they'll get a whole lot of work on that in practice this week. Uh, the chart, and I want to revisit this for a moment because I love statistics, and, and the chart is always something that's really interesting to me because you know this chart was developed, I think, 25 years ago, and every NFL and college coach treats it like the gospel, and we played right into it. You know, Once we got to 19, the chart says go for two, once we get to 25, the chart says go for two. And, and to me, I think a better approach is to be more tactical. Uh, you, you keep adding points on until it's closer and you have a more defined metric. So, hey, a team's within one score. If you can get it and go for two, you can put them to two scores. You know, those sort of things I think make more sense. So I'm with you there. I don't get the chart when you have those kind of leads. And, and I think this is a little bit of a opposite side of this is when coaches have big leads, which you saw us do at the end of the game – we were playing conservative in the red zone for a field goal, which I think is very smart strategy mathematically. We hit a field goal late in the game to go up four scores, as opposed to trying to go for a touchdown, which still puts you up four scores. That makes mathematical sense. So <laughs> to me, you know, they're kind of exhibiting the opposite bias. It's always fascinating. NFL coaches do it. College coaches do it. McIlwain did it. I generally love aggressiveness, but I think we have a big lead early on. You just keep pouring on points of positive momentum, and you wait until things get closer to evaluate that. So... I agree with you there, and, and hopefully we won't be hitting the uprights on any more extra points, and maybe we won't have this problem. But, uh, you know, Jorge made some field goals. I know they call him George Powell, but we're going to call him Jorge. We love this. Jorge. We're going to call him Jorge on this podcast. That's why I suppose his name. So uh, with with that, any any other thoughts on the Ole Miss game that you want to get out there that we haven't talked about? I think this
4: is a team that came in averaging, you know, speaking of Ole Miss, 55 points a game or something like that, and to see them absolutely shut down – Um, I think shows the potential of our defense and you know, our offense finally turning the corner and putting up points against a really talented defense shows their ceiling. So that's what everyone is writing about this week is the fact that who knows where this Florida team is going to end up. Uh, We don't know what the ceiling is for the team. Um, So that's really exciting. I don't expect us to come out and play like this every week necessarily, but it's exciting to know that the sky is the limit. Now that I, I'm not now predicting us to win the national championship or anything, but it's cool to see this team improving on such a big
1: level week to week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think the same, the best thing about what we saw was that it's highly repeatable. Nothing we did in that old miss game was, was magical or special or trick play oriented. What we did is highly repeatable. We played solid defense. We improved our tackling significantly we called great plays on offense. We kept Ole Miss off balance. Uh, we threw consistently accurate passes. We ran really good routes. We secured the football. Those are things that can be done time and time and time again. This was not a fluke game. No, it's not like we had like six turnovers and we
4: just buried them. There was really only that one turnover that was significant till the very end. Like we were up on them huge without like getting like seven interceptions or something like that. And that's and that's
1: the thing. Do we know where our ceiling is? No, but if that's our ceiling, can we win a national championship? Maybe. I mean, Old Miss is a weird team, and that's the one caveat I want to say. I think my takeaway from the game is, as excited as I am, and I'm very excited, so much of what we've talked about has happened, so much of the tactics, um, McIlwain's commitment to attention to detail, all these things that I have believed as we've watched unfold, you know, be be reasons why coaches are successful are happening, but it's still important to know that one in college football anything can happen. to your kids and two, Old Miss is prone to some really bad losses. Last year they also beat Alabama and they got waxed near the end of the year by several teams. TCU beat them forty two to three. Arkansas beat them thirty nothing. And of course, this Old Miss team is probably better than that team was last year in a lot of respects. But it, I, you know, you just don't know. Yeah. And we haven't played a power team yet, which we're going to play. You know, We're going to play two of them, pretty much back-to-back with LSU and Georgia. We have to see if we can pass that test. But in the meantime, we have Missouri on the roll this week, and they provide their own test because they've sort of been like a house of horrors for us. But before we get to that, I want to spend just a moment talking about the Gator Nation Football Podcast Twitter page. So right now we have somewhere around 8,000 listeners which is absolutely amazing. Alan I'm and I, Alan. And I love, love talking to you guys each week, talking with you guys about Gator football. Our Twitter page right now has like 11 followers. Now, what I'm asking is for everyone that's listening to this show to go on Twitter and to follow us, and not because we're going to post these incredible updates or things that are going to blow your mind on Twitter, but simply because it allows us to get access to all the great guests that we have. And our quote-unquote Twitter game is not very strong If Alan or I are tweeting at you know a famous celebrity with our eleven followers, saying, "Hey, wait, we have eight thousand listeners. Our show is really successful. But look at our eleven followers." So if you get a moment, you can just jump onto Twitter and you can follow us at the Gator Nation Fall Podcast, which is Gator Nation FBPc. Like I said, just click follow. It's one and done. We're not going to send a bunch of stuff out on it. We're not going to try to become the world's most creative Twitter site. We are going to use it to get guests. And better guests for you guys. Yeah, uh, better guests for you guys. And speaking of guests, I'm really excited about today's Gator Nation guest, which is Kiwan Ratliff. Let's bring him on the program right now.
4: All right. We are joined now on the program. Very happy to have Kiwan Ratliff, former Gators corner from 2000, 2003. He was an All-American in 2003 and was also the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Thanks so much for being on today.
3: I appreciate you for having me.
1: So Kiwan, let's jump right in. We know that you work a lot with personnel. We know that you have a 7-on-7 team, and you can certainly tell us a little bit about that as far as what you're doing now. We know that because of that, you have a pretty good idea of what the program is looking for with regards to the talent they're recruiting. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: I mean, as far as uh, the talent-wise, I mean, I think that's pretty much the same no matter what year, no matter what coach you go through. Uh, Every year, the coach is looking for the best talent throughout the state of Florida. That's the, the your homegrown talent. That's the one where you want to stake a claim in, and you want to be able to go down south and get those guys. You want to be out in the, the central Florida area. You want to be in north Florida area. If you can just get, I would say, 80 to 90% of your recruiting class from here in the state of Florida, then I'm pretty sure you have a great class with a lot of great talent.
1: What specifically... And I know some of the guys you've worked with. Uh, who Who are some of those guys that are on the team now that you specifically spent time working with in the past couple of years?
3: Uh, well, in high school, we I was I was fortunate enough to have in the same secondary as uh, two of our safeties, uh, Keanu Neal and Marcel Harris. They were they were two guys that came and, and played with us at the Rat Pack. We had uh, Duke Dawson that came and played with us. I've known Nick Washington since he was probably in eighth or ninth grade because he was playing with uh, Gus Scott down at Trinity Christian in Jacksonville, which was my roommate in college. Uh, A few of the other guys, you know, like Vernon, we would see Vernon at all the tournaments, and I got a pretty good relationship with his dad built when he was over at USF because he was recruiting a lot of the guys. So just throughout the seven tournaments and the the seven-on-seven thing that's going on now, and it's catching on pretty big, you get a chance to bond with a lot of those guys like the Quincy Wilson. Me and his dad have become pretty good friends uh, just by watching Quincy over the year, the 7-on-7, seven seven, and then be, becoming friends with his dad.
1: So looking back to the game on Saturday, which was obviously great for any any Gator fan, any Gator player, uh, what what do we do on defense? Or what, do, what are we doing on defense, essentially, that's working so well right now with regards to a lot of the guys you mentioned? You know, Neil certainly had a huge hit in that game. The whole secondary played really well. What are we doing strategically that's working for us right now?
3: Well, I think the thing, the main thing that's working in our in our favor right now, is the the multi fronts that we're running and the multi coverages that we're running. With Coach Muschamp, Coach Muschamp is a great defensive coordinator. I would, I don't a defense of mine I should say. I would never try to take anything away from him, and Coach Durkin and a lot of those other guys that were here with that staff. But with this staff and Coach Collins, what he's doing a lot is he's mixing up coverages. He's mixing up fronts, He's mixing up the look for the quarterback so that the quarterback doesn't come out of the uh, huddle and with his pre-snap read know exactly what everyone is doing. One play you may come out and see press man. Another play you may come out and see cover three. Then you may come out and see uh, uh, double high safety. So it's all with the same front, all with the same alignments initially. And on the snap, everybody's moving to different locations and doing different things. Now it's forcing those guys to think and not play as fast as they could if they knew exactly where we would be every time.
1: And so it looks like our base alignment generally, right, is some sort of nickel cover two or even a dime at some point in times, uh cover two, but mainly a nickel with, with either Tabor or Marcus May playing down low. And then like you said, there's been a lot of variation post snap to where we're confusing the, the corners. And I saw, I saw at the end of the game last week, Tabor was playing a lot of like free nickel in the middle of the field, which is interesting. And so, Do you think we're going to continue to see innovation as we go on, as the year goes on, or have we pretty much done everything creatively we're going to do and we're going to continue on in that sort of same vein?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's on a game-by-game basis. Against Ole Miss, they were pretty much uh, dominant 11 personnel or three wide receiver personnel, one running back uh, type of personnel where they were putting a lot of wide receivers on the field, which gives you a lot more flexibility with those defensive backs. And with us having so many injuries and the lack of depth at linebacker, I think that kind of played into our personnel fans uh, with them being a passing team. But if you go against a team like Georgia or an LSU, I'm pretty sure that front, the schemes, everything will be a little bit different because those guys come out in 22 personnel, which will – tight ends and two running back steps a lot with a fullback in the game uh, bigger bodies in the game Where, whereas we, like you said, we're playing predominantly nickel right now but in games like that you want to have you don't want to have five or six DBs on the field when there's only one or two wide receivers so I think you can, you can pretty much say that on a game by game basis the personnel would change on the defense so the schemes and the techniques and the assignments would change as well
4: so we have a lot of high-profile defensive backs on this team, most notably Vernon Hargraves third, but also Quincy Wilson and Jalen Tabor. Can you talk for a minute and just what makes them special? Like, why are they good at what they're doing?
3: Well, I believe that uh, Vernon is so special because Vernon had the technique that it requires to be a great college corner or a great NFL corner or a great corner period at such a young age. I can remember seeing him play as a sophomore in high school and him staying square at the line, him, you know, no false steps, no crossover steps, just small things that most DBs don't learn until you get to maybe your junior, senior year of college, if you learned it at all in college. And he was doing those types of things as a second-year high school player. So just things like that for a guy like Vernon is what sets him apart. A guy like Quincy, his size stands out to you from the first time you see him. I mean, he's he's easily, may I'd say probably 6'1", 205, and he moves like a 5'10", 180-pound corner. He's not afraid to hit you. He'll come up and mix it up with you. He can move inside in the slide. He can play outside. he play multiple positions, and he can cover. So that that makes him uh, a hard matchup for most wide receivers. And then Jalen is just one of those guys that you draw up as a corner. If you were playing Madden and you were creating your guy, your players, or college football or any of that, you want that corner with long limbs that can have great ball skills, that can run and uh, and thinks the game. And that's exactly what Jalen does. So in those three guys, you have three interchangeable pieces that can move inside, outside, cover big wide receivers, small wide receivers, and none of them are afraid to hit.
1: So if you were the opposing coach and you were going to attack our defensive backs, have you picked up any weaknesses on film or in practice or things that you say, you know, this is where we probably still need to improve?
3: Well, if if I'm going to attack our defensive backs, first thing I'm going to do is come out and and never give them what they see on film the week before. I mean, because the way these guys are studying film and the way these guys are jumping on your number one, your number two favorite routes, I mean, that's that's showing that they're students of the game. So anytime you're attacking guys that are students of the game, you want to attack them and show them things that they've seen on film and have a counter punch with it. So, I mean, that's something that's obvious that most offensive coordinators try to do anyway, but that's probably the only way you can attack them because right now if you come out doing something that you've been doing all year, those guys are just physically too good and mentally too good for you to repeat yourself.
1: Now, Kiwan, we know that during your time in the Swamp, you had a whole lot of interceptions. Uh, and I know I know, watching you as a player back then that you, you tend to have this knack to break off your coverage and, and read either it'd be a route or the quarterback, especially when we ran a lot of zone. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what you're looking for, what really any corner is looking for when they're going to maybe take what looks like a gamble, but in reality is, is a calculated risk that winds up with an interception?
3: Well, with me personally, I mean, I can't speak for those guys, but for me personally, the things that I look for as a player were down and distance, Tennessee's, formation tendencies, and route uh, combination tendencies. With most co- with most coordinators, offensive coordinators, they'll come out and if it's second and eight, if you watch all their second and medium to long uh, situations throughout the season, you'll start to pick up on the pattern. Some coaches may like to go to this route if it's second and six to eight. Some coaches may like to go to this formation if it's third and medium. Some coaches may like to – you know, give you this type of motion just to see if you're a man or zone when they want to run this play. So if you can pick up on those coordinators' tendencies and and on some of their habits, then a lot of times if you see it, I I tell the guys that I work with all the time, don't wait till the second or third time you see it. The first time, trust what you've seen on tape, trust what you've seen on film, and jump at that first one because you may not get a second or third opportunity.
4: You had a lot of really great moments during your time as a Gator. Is there one in particular that stands out, maybe a favorite moment while you're in the swamp?
3: Well, my, my favorite moment as a Gator and in the swamp are two different things. My favorite moment in the swamp, I actually was – playing against Florida State my senior year, and I know, I mean, we lost that game. I, I still say we won it. The refs, want, the, the refs took it from us. Absolutely, absolutely. In that, in that game, that was the first game in the Swamp where I had my mom, my dad, my grandparents, my brothers, my whole family there to watch me play in Florida. So win, lose, or draw, that was my favorite moment of all time in the Swamp. But my favorite moment as a Gator was that in my junior year, playing against Michigan in the Outback Bowl. Michigan was a school that I was committed to and I was leaning towards very heavily throughout high school. And to get a chance to play against them and to play against a childhood friend and Marlon Jackson was a dream come true to me and actually catch a touchdown on Marlon in Michigan. in that game was the highlight of my career uh, other than my defensive uh, plays that I made.
1: Hmm. Kewon, that's great insight. And lastly, if you could give us a prediction for, for this week and since you've you've obviously given us tremendous insight into some of the X's and O's, maybe a thought as well as to what kind of scheme we'll employ against a freshman quarterback on the road.
3: Well, I, I mean I honestly I don't think the, the scheme will change up much. I mean Missouri is a pass happy offense as well. I think we'll probably blitz a little bit more, uh put a little bit more pressure on the young guy to try to force his hand a little bit more to, you know, to, to, to get him to make some mistakes early on. But as far as the coverages and everything, I think it's pretty much going to stay the same because if you see one team come out in three, four wide receiver sets and you see the different coverages and they're working, more than likely going to stay with that. And our secondary is good enough to handle to handle that. And I believe this game, we, we ride that momentum from the, the big win that we just had against Ole Miss and we come out with a, a double-digit victory.
1: I love it. This is Kiwan Ratliff joining us on the program today. He was obviously and still is a Gator great. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show, Kiwan. If you want to follow him, you can get him on Twitter at, at @KiwanRatliff. Ratliff. He uh, predominantly spends his time now with the Rat Pack, which is a seven-on-seven football team, and also assisting you know, players recruiting and getting recruited around the college area. Thanks again, Kiwan. It was a uh, wonderful chatting with you.
3: Oh, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate you guys You know, keep, keeping me a part of that, that gig of lore that's going on right now.
4: That was a fantastic interview with Keewan Ratliff.
1: I assume you agree with James. I love talking about the X's and O's like that, and it really illustrates what it takes to be a high-level player in college, and especially in the NFL. You have to be a thinker. You have to be smart. Let's talk about the Missouri game now, though. Upcoming the Saturday night game. Their fans will be pumped up. They've taken a bad loss to Kentucky. They've beaten South Carolina. Set the stage for us.
4: This screams trap game to me. This is the classic huge win. You've got a big-time opponent coming up in two weeks, and you're going up against an opponent that has struggled this year who isn't a big brand-name program. This is a young team who I think is going to experience a lot of up-and-downs this season This game really concerns me. What about you?
1: Yeah, I feel like it shouldn't concern me, but it does. One, because Missouri is this weird team that keeps beating us. And I keep thinking like, oh, it's only a matter of time before Missouri goes away forever. Once Florida's good, Georgia's good, Tennessee's good, they're relegated to the basement. But that's not really true. Uh, They're going to start a freshman quarterback, and they're going to be at home. They've had our number. They still have a great defensive line that can generate a lot of pressure, so... Probably one of the things I'm excited about watching is how we handle another road environment. And now we have so much hype, it's going to be a pretty hyped-up road environment. And how we handle another really good defensive line, this is probably the best defensive line we've faced thus far because their defensive ends are getting so much pressure. Even though they're quote-unquote no-names right now, their production is the best we've seen. So I'm curious to see how we're going to handle that along with the fact that it is, in fact, a trap game. What do you think about the quarterback situation?
4: So Matty Mock, their um, started for the last couple of years is suspended for about a month. We're not sure. So they started a true freshman drew Locke, last week. He played pretty well. Um, they got the win, but I'm hopeful that we're going to give him fits again. I think their offense should, it's kind of similar to Mississippi a little bit should play into our hands in terms of us playing the nickel. And if we send some pressure at him, my hope is that he's going to fold. Um, I don't know. It, the whole Missouri thing is, feels crazy to me. Like it, we sh- shouldn't be that scared scary of team, but it is, uh, it's been kind of a house of horrors for us either there or at home. You know, I'm not sure it, how we're going to handle, you know, the hype, you know, this is like a theme. How do you handle success is a big question with, especially with a young team and hopefully a mitigating factor in this situation is that they crushed us last year. And there's a lot of guys on the team who remember that very well. And hopefully the coaching staff will be able to point that out. Is uh hey guys, don't take this Missouri team for granted because they just blasted you last
1: year. I think that I think that's in our favor as well. We've lost, you know, two years in a row right to our last three. I think these guys have a bad taste in their mouth with regards to Missouri in general, like Gator fans do. And and I'm thankful it's not an eleven AM kick like yes. it was the last time we played there. I think that bodes in our favor. And it's yet another stepping stone. In a weird way, we wouldn't have viewed it as a stepping stone, but here we are, we've passed this incredible test. Can you now show that you're a team that can play with consistency against a team that's not as exciting or sexy to play against as old Miss? So another chance for us to pass that test. Let's talk a little bit about the SEC East. It's wide open right wide now. Wide open. We're in first. We control our destiny. We're in first. Who it's, saw that coming? Yeah, right? I mean, it's really fantastic. We thought we could compete for one, and now we're in first. So we control our own destiny, which is wonderful. The only teams we know are really out are Vanderbilt and South Carolina. Everyone else is alive. This game means a lot for Missouri, means a ton for us. Let's broaden the scope even further and talk about whether or not we think some of these teams are good or bad. Let's play a little contender-pretender. Let's do it. I'm going to start with the East teams. So this is a contender or pretender to win the SEC title? This is to win the SEC title. Yeah. Okay. Win the SEC title. Do you think they can win, or are they going to be a flash in the pan and they'll be out by the end? Let's start with uh, Georgia. Just got drubbed by Alabama at home. Typical mark rate loss. What do you get? I still have to say they're a contender- ton of talent, uh, a lot of winnable games left on their schedule. I say contender as well, even though I feel like they're the same Georgia team they always are, which means that they inevitably cannot be a contender by definition, but I'm going to say they are because somebody has to be. Missouri. I'm going to say pretender. They've struggled
4: insanely on offense. I mean, they put up nine points against UConn,
1: and... I don't know. We'll see coming out this weekend, but I have to say Pretender. Yeah, Pretender. 100% Pretender. Freshman quarterback. Other quarterbacks suspended. Don't have the talent. Transition year. Pretender. We'll save us for later. Okay. Let's save us for later. Let's go to the West now. Let's go LSU.
4: Contender. I don't think they've proven it totally yet, but I have to say, did I say
1: Pretender? I said, I mean Contender. (laughs) I'm great at this game. Contender. (laughs) I'm going to say Pretender. I think LSU is is literally a one-man team. I think they have one man. Leonard Fournette, and he's disgusting. And I think the rest of their team is below average. They have a quarterback who throws for 80 yards per game. They have a defense that's giving up points to everybody. As soon as someone can stop Fournette, which maybe they can't stop Fournette, but as soon as someone can, they're not going to win. I don't think they can win enough games against tough opponents. I'm going to say pretender. Alabama. Uh, contender, definitely. 100% contender. No doubt in my mind. The demise of Alabama is, is greatly overhyped. I fully expect them to be there by the end.
4: Ole Miss. Uh, I'm gonna have to say Pretender. I, they're gonna be too up and down. I don't trust them in big moments yet. Yeah, I
1: don't. I really don't know what to do with Ole Miss. Like, can I put them in the tweener category, like wait and see? They got a big schedule coming. No, up. No, you gotta tell me. I'm gonna say Pretender. If they were a contender, they wouldn't have lost to us the way they did. I mean, we're certainly not an NFL team, so I'm gonna have to say Pretender. Texas A&M. Oh gosh, this is the toughest one. I like this team a lot. They're still really young. I'm gonna say contender. I'm going to say contender as well. I I don't think they can maybe hang with the Bamas of the world, play for play, but they win games, they're gritty, their offense is moving the ball. Someone does well under those circumstances. And last but not least, the Florida Gators. Big time
4: contender. Obviously, first place in the SEC East. Uh, No, really, I do think
1: the East is wide open.
4: And if you can get to the SEC championship game, who knows?
1: Yeah, I say contender, and I'm really rooting for Alabama not to be the opponent that we face if we make it, which I think now I think we are probably – the best team in the East, because we have a quarterback. In fact, we probably have the best quarterback in the entire SEC. And that's, it's that's a big a statement, statement, but it also is indicative of how poor the quarterback play is yes, in the Maybe faint praise,
4: actually. But, um,
1: a big but, you know, Greer's ceiling is really high. He probably shouldn't be the best right now, but I wouldn't I would I wouldn't trade him for anybody else in the SEC. So I think that gives us a big leg up, I'm going to say, contender. Okay,
4: well, let's jump into the keys to this game. What do the Gators have to do to
1: win? Really? we We need to have a freshman quarterback play like a freshman quarterback and I'm not talking about what Greer I'm talking about Drew Locke if if we don't allow him to complete passes and they have to run the ball they can't score they shouldn't score they shouldn't score more than 13 points against us Uh, but stopping their offense isn't really the deal that's our strength versus their weakness it's going to be our offense the only way Missouri is going to beat us is if they really mess up our offense they get turnovers we're not able to move the ball we lose the field position battle so If you're watching this game and you're wondering what's going to make us win or lose, all you have to do is watch our offense. Watch our offensive line, watch our field position, and watch our turnovers. If those things go well, we're going to win the game rather easily. So I think this game is going to be won
4: or lost for us actually during preparation this week. Can these guys refocus themselves after two huge victories and gear up enough for Missouri? This is what's crazy about college football. You don't know how a team's going to respond to wins or losses. I think if we can do, if we can be focused this week, I think we should handle Missouri pretty well. Um, but yeah, the offensive line's got to play really well again, and uh, the defense just has to, I think, continue to tackle. No big busted plays. If they can keep everything in front of them, um, I think we should win. So give me your prediction. Give me the score. All right, uh, I think we're gonna put up some points again.
1: I'm gonna say uh, 33 to 13. I like that score. We're seemingly picking the same scores like every time I'm going to say 27, although I really feel like we could score 40, but I'm going to say 27. I'm going to give their defense some credit and I'm going to say they get, they get 10 on us. And uh, I think, like I said, the thing that I know you and I will both be watching for, I know I'm definitely going to be watching for is how we get off in the game on an early start. I think if we come out and score once or twice early on, this game is completely over. We're better than them at virtually every position. We have more talent at virtually every position And we're riding an incredible momentum wave. So really, the start will be key. And then obviously, continued progress of the offensive line. That's going to be the big thing for us to see. And like you said, how do we handle success? Everyone's talking about you now. Everyone actually thinks you're good now. How do you handle that as a player?
4: Making that prediction makes me so nervous to say it out loud. That that big of a win? Because Missouri has just haunted us. Oh, man. Okay, we'll see. I... And my head tells us that's what happened. In my heart, I'm super nervous to make that prediction. So let's talk to TJ Moe up next. He's a really accomplished wide wide receiver from Missouri. He's got a lot of interesting thoughts, I know, about this team. So let's bring him on right now.
1: Let's welcome to the program TJ Moe. He is a former Missouri wide receiver. He was the captain of the 2012 football team. He is now also a radio host in St. Louis, and that's where he joins us from today. TJ, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks guys. How are we doing today? All
1: right, we're doing great. It's a sunny day in Gainesville after after a big win and I know you guys had a had a big win as well uh, on Saturday. Speaking of that win, what's the state of the Missouri program right now?
2: Honestly, I don't think anybody really knows because of the quarterback situation and the fact that South Carolina is a very bad football team. So, this is a Missouri team that Beat a directional school to start the year, which I don't think anybody really counts. It's Southeast Missouri. And then go into Arkansas State, which I think they're a decent football team, but certainly not somebody you should be struggling with in the fourth quarter. And then uh, you beat Connecticut. You lose to Kentucky, who I think is a decent football team, um, but, but certainly not really good. And then you beat South Carolina by two touchdowns. Uh, But it's the quarterback turmoil that everybody's talking right now. Obviously, the suspension of Matty Mock is a big deal. And we don't really know what's happening inside that locker room. That's that's kind of the thing that's always a question mark when you have suspensions, when you have uh, a true freshman quarterback and a very good defense. Really, nobody really knows what the state of this team is. And I think we'll find out a lot about them after this weekend.
1: And speaking of Matty Mock, I just saw today that he might be suspended throughout the end of the month. Do we have any idea yet what he's done?
2: I don't think anybody outside the program really has. I'm, there there's rumors floating around, of course, and and out of respect for the program that I was a part of, I wouldn't speculate, but I don't think uh, I don't think there's any knowledge of the situation being reported in the media. And so, yeah, I mean I tried to tell people I had a lot of questions on Twitter about what could get you suspended for one game initially. And I said, well, it could be just about anything. Honestly, coaches can suspend you for missing class for missing meetings, um, for missing practice for being late too many times, uh, for it's an altercation with a teammate or a coach it could be academic. It could be a thousand different things really in anything that the coach deems, uh, plausible for, for a suspension. Is is what can happen now being suspended through the end of the month that is something that maybe doesn't add up a little bit because it's not a legal matter to our knowledge and when when it is a legal matter the local reporters and beat writers figure it out real quick it's always some sort of you know they go through the arrests or things like that so this is some sort of internal matter Uh, But to be suspended for a month, and we don't know that for sure. Pinkle hasn't made that announcement yet. But for a month-long suspension, there's something a little more going on than maybe what was at first led to believe.
4: Well, speaking of Coach Pinkle, let me ask you about him. I think he's a little bit of an enigma to most college football fans around the country. feels like he's one of two extremes. Either he's a really underrated program builder, or he's somebody who's maybe in over his head a little bit, and I don't know which. Uh, What's your thoughts on him right now?
2: I don't know that he's ever been in over his head. And he built a a really good program over at Toledo. I think he's the all-time winning coach over there. And certainly in Missouri, he's the all-time winning coach over here. He's got five division titles in the last seven years. And um, his one thing is that he hasn't been able to win a championship game. And he's won some big games, if you guys remember back to 2007, the game was nicknamed Armageddon. It was the game against Kansas when Kansas was probably had the only good team they've had in the last century. But they were ranked number two in the country. And Missouri was ranked number four, a team led by Chase Daniel and Jeremy Macklin. And that team beat them on a national stage, ended up losing to Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship game. But that was really what put the Pinkle program on the map, that game and that season. 2008 they get back to the big 12 championship game but get blown out by oklahoma uh, In a sam bradford team in his heisman season where they scored 62 points, and I think they broke the all-time scoring record uh, For that year that was a very good offense then you come into 2010 was another really good program um, Where we I was actually on that team and we beat oklahoma when they were the number one ranked team in the country and started out 7-0 for the first time. Missouri hadn't done that since 1960 when Dan Devine was a coach. And so uh, you've seen him break through some barriers as the coach of Missouri. And, and everywhere he's gone, he's won. But Missouri at this point in time is not a program that's going to be, say, where Georgia's at, where they're going to win 10 games every year. Georgia hasn't been able to win the big game either. I think they've only won the SEC one time under Mark Frick, if I'm not mistaken. They haven't won the big game either, and and they proved that again this past week when a big game against Alabama comes, and they get slaughtered. But they're a perennial 10-win team. That's a very good program. And I know you guys don't like to hear that down there, but they are. And Pinkle is probably not there yet. It's probably not a 10-win program every single year. But every two to three years, they will have a team that can fight for a division title and maybe every – Five years they have a team that can fight for a conference title and will be on the national stage. And Pinkel has had three of those teams really, four of those teams over the past seven years.
1: And it's interesting as you bring up Georgia and other SEC teams you know, you played for both a Big 12 conference as well as the SEC conference, and a lot's made out of the differences. And I know you've made some comments in the past about them. Now seeing it a little bit in the reflection, Missouri's obviously had a lot of success. Is there a difference in your mind between playing in the SEC and the Big 12, competing in it, or is it, is it more or less the same and a lot of it's just hype?
2: No, there's a big difference. There really is. And honestly, between the lines, the difference is more the offensive philosophies, and that's changing a little bit. But, but the quarterback play in the Big 12 has been so much better in recent years. I know there was a good group of quarterbacks coming through the SEC, um, but really this year there's almost no one, and that's the that's the differences between the two conferences. I've actually gone on record saying I don't think the SEC team uh, the SEC gets a team in the playoff this year because of that. There's no quarterback that can really. Uh, has proven that he can take over a game like you're seeing Baylor do right now. Like you see even Texas tech is running up and down the field. Oklahoma's got a guy that can really play. Um, you're just not seeing that out of the sec schools who are really still in the, the running attack. You're seeing some teams go to the spread a little bit, which I think you're actually seeing more with drew lock. You're seeing Missouri go back to that big 12 type spread. There was a lot of short passes on Saturday that, I mean, That's how we went. That's how we did it when I played. I made a career out of running about six yards and catching football. And they were trying to go downfield with Matty Mock. With Drew Locke, they're they're shortening it up a little bit because I think that's more his strength. And he's got a really strong arm so he can get the ball out quickly. Um, But the the, the signal callers are, are, I just think, so much better in the Big 12 right now than in the SEC. And I know the SEC has had some really good quarterbacks over the last five or six years. Uh, and even going back further than that, they have had some guys. But spe- specifically right now, I think that's a big difference in the conferences. And and I just played one year in the SEC, and we struggled that year. We went 5-7, and seven and it took a little while to get acclimated. We lost a few games, but I think just a few points. I mean, we, we had Georgia. We were beating Georgia in the fourth quarter in our first SEC game. Uh, as a member of the conference, we probably should have beaten Vanderbilt, lost to them in the fourth quarter, went down to the swamp and lost by seven points to a team that went to the Sugar Bowl that year. And then uh, also Syracuse. So we had a team that was not bad and we had some athletes on that team. Um, but that same team probably would have had about the same record in the big 12, just different. You know, the, the hard thing is, it's like to win in the big 12, you probably need to score 50. Oftentimes to win in the SEC, you got to score 30 but that 30 is much harder to attain than that 50 in the big 12
1: Hmm, yeah that's well said that's well said and speaking of, of of quarterbacks going to drew Locke, he obviously did well against a team that i agree with you a very very poor south carolina team and a poorest defense is the plan this week or what is the plan going to be for drew Locke? because do they think they're going to be able to hit those short passes when the strength of florida is a secondary or what do you think the game plan is going to be to try to get him into the game
2: yeah, I think you're right. I think Florida's got the best secondary in the entire conference. They're really good. This is probably the best secondary they've had since 2012. And a couple of those guys were first rounders. Was it Josh Elam Was with the Ravens now, and um, and they had some good players. So this secondary is really good. And the thing is about good secondaries, you can. It's it's not like you can't complete passes on them. You just have to be really efficient about how you go about it true rock was i think he was 20 for 26 on saturday against south carolina but it was for like 136 yards he was 20 for 28 uh, for 136 yards so the passes aren't going anywhere you know it's like normally if you see a 20 for 21 for 28 you're, you're looking for 250 yards and that that just wasn't the case they threw a lot of a lot of passes right near the line of scrimmage. They threw some bubbles. They threw some six-yard passes. But what you also saw out of Drew Locke was the ability to fire a pass in there. And, I mean, the ball flies out of this kid's hands. I played with Lang Gabbard, and I've got the fingers to prove it because I, they probably need some surgery after all the beating that they took because he had so much velocity on the football. And that's how Drew is. When he really wants to put something on the ball, the ball. I mean, it, it comes out like a cannonball. So that is uh, he does have that ability, but like you're saying, does he have the ability to fit in a small window like you're going to have to do against Florida? I'm not sure, and it's going to be a really good test.
1: And we know last week we were surprised the Gators won. You were surprised the Gators won. I know on Twitter you had this pretty funny uh, quick exchange where it's sort of Florida's going to lose to old Miss guaranteed, you know, come on guys, the second quarter, Florida's definitely going to lose, followed by my favorite, okay, I'm an idiot, Florida doesn't suck. And so, <laughs> and I think, I think that's actually the phase of probably a lot of Gator fans, even in reality, as we're going through that game. So we know our secondary is good, we also know we have some weaknesses, but what do you think Missouri's maybe keys to this game are going to be for them to be able to win at home? Uh, what has to go right for them in this game?
2: They're going to have to get some turnovers. And I think that that's why they beat South Carolina. If you look at the box score, and I'll see if I can pull that up. The yardage, I mean, just the – I don't even – I was looking at this earlier today. Time of possession was, I mean, almost dead even. Uh, Yardage, Missouri outgained South Carolina by one yard. You had penalties. I think uh, Missouri had six less penalty yards, so that was – call that a wash. The difference in the game was South Carolina threw three interceptions. Missouri had zero turnovers, and they won by 14 points. That, to me, used to be a staple of Pinkle's program and has really been something over the previous two seasons with uh, the runs to the SEC East division title. They haven't done that this year. And you had three interceptions from a quarterback Nunez, who was just tossing it up for grabs. I mean, one, one of the interceptions was to a, a defensive end. who's a redshirt freshman. So he it's not like he was playing a good game. Um, I think his biggest issue, the, the biggest issue for the defense right now, they're a really good defense. They have a lot of stacks. They have a lot of tackles for loss. They have a great group of linebackers, very athletic, probably the most athletic in the SEC. But they, right now they're not stripping at the ball. And, and what you used to see over the last probably two seasons, is every time a Missouri player would come in contact with any offensive player, he was stripping at the football. There was always, they call it the can opener. You kind of secure the tackle and rip at the arm. And they had so many turnovers because of that. This season, what you're seeing is some good form tackling, aside from the Arkansas State and Connecticut games. (laughs) Um, But they're not – getting any turnovers they're not getting any fumbles I mean you had three interceptions but a lot of that is due to poor throws if they don't start ripping at the football and really making a concerted effort to get these turnovers I don't think they stand a chance against Florida if Florida plays even 80% of the way they played against Old Miss
4: well let me ask you about Missouri itself what's it like being at a home game there and maybe give me your favorite restaurant there for
2: Gator fans traveling Okay, so my favorite restaurant is D Rose. It's a guy that he used to play at Missouri way back when, and it's it's off a road called Knife. If you get in, it's just D R O S E D Rose R O W E. Excuse me, and um and the it's phenomenal. And if if you go there, you have to get the portobello mushrooms as your appetizer. And that place, it's kind of a it's a little bit more of a it's got a bar scene. And it's, it's probably not the most popular restaurant in Columbia, but I always loved it. That's one place that I went every time I had a chance. Um, game day experience at Missouri, you know, it's interesting. There was only 66,000 at South Carolina. There was more at the Connecticut game. So I don't know at this point if the Missouri fans are maybe a little bit rejuvenated because they have uh, some hope that with georgia losing and now playing florida that if they win this game they're back into the race for the east i don't know if that's going to be the case or not i think people were really down after winning a nine to six game against connecticut where somehow neither team converted a field goal and the score was still nine to six (laughs) um and then you lose to kentucky And it's just like – I mean, Kentucky could win the national championship and every team would still be like, dude, we lost to Kentucky. It's a basketball school. They suck. It doesn't matter how good they are. You just think it's Kentucky. They're awful. So a lot of fans were down for that. I think there was 69,000 at the Connecticut game and only 66,000 at South Carolina. But when the place is rocking, that place is as good a place to play and to visit as there is in the whole conference. And and I can't speak to – all the places, uh, but I have been to the Swamp. I have been to Tennessee. Granted, they were not a good football team that year. I've been to South Carolina. I've been to just about every Big 12 stadium. And Missouri, when when it is rocking, that place is awesome. They've got their M-I-Z-Z-O-U chant that goes back and forth between the alumni side and the student section side. And uh, it'll be homecoming this weekend, too. So we're hoping for a big turnout
1: and before we get your your prediction on the game you mentioned some away stadiums you played in did you have a favorite away stadium that just really impressed you you like the atmosphere the culture the you know the game day experience
2: you know all of the sec stadiums are pretty awesome that's one thing that i love about missouri switching to that conference because it football is taken so seriously it is a religion it is a way of life it is it is something that everywhere you go, you are you are welcomed at least by the fans. Maybe during the game, it's not super awesome, but at least uh, before the game, everybody's very friendly. It's that southern hospitality that I think is fake sometimes, but they still have to do it and make you feel welcome. And I there was never a time, and and as a player, I know it's different. But it was my parents came to all the games, and I had a lot of friends in the stands, and they always what they said was, and it's just it's just different. You know, it's hard to explain sometimes, but it is just different. Um South Carolina was awesome, which by the way, if you get a chance, go Google South Carolina's stadium right now and see the flood. It's unbelievable. Yeah, can't, it's underwater I mean, you can't even see the field. Yeah, no, yeah. it's
1: incredible what's going on over there.
2: Yeah, un- unbelievable um, but that I think that tells you the the state of the program right now too. It's a nice metaphor <laughs> and uh, the other the other I, I guess the one so I played at Texas A&m three straight years. And that's probably never happened before in college football It's sort of ridiculous. We played against them in 2010. And honestly, that was the birth of Ryan Tannehill because Gerard Johnson was a starter back then. We had a defensive end named Brad Madison that had three sacks on Gerard who just played terrible. We beat them 30 to nine, I think. And Ryan Tannehill was inserted into the lineup towards the end of the game and never looked back. He's still starting for the dolphins. Um, We played them there. Then the next year was the shakeup because Nebraska left and Colorado went to the Pac-12. So we played there again because then it became round robin, 10 teams like it is still today. Then we go to the SEC. Of course, Texas A&M also goes and schedule has it. We go there again. So we won two out of three there. And even when we got stomped in 2012, Johnny Manziel won the Heisman and, and we just got slaughtered. But it was still an awesome atmosphere. The stuff that they do, they march the horses around the field. They've got a lot of stuff going on, and they've expanded it since I've played there. I think it's like hundred and four, or 105,000 people can fit in that place. That place is awesome, and I hate to say this because I can't stand this program, but Nebraska was unbelievable. There's, everything about this, the place is terrible, except if you're a player on Nebraska, I remember – Their defensive was out there and it was still when they were like claiming the black shirts of which is long gone, but they're claiming, okay, black shirts are out there. I'm standing as a slot receiver three yards. We cut our splits way down close to the tackles because we knew it was going to be loud. I'm sitting three yards from our left tackle and I am screaming at the top of my lungs that the blitz is coming. They're smoking off the edge and here comes the linebacker. I think it was Levante David now that I'm looking back at it and he never even turns his head because it's so loud. And Blaine Gabbert just got absolutely ripped. And it's it's that sort of thing that tells you, man, this has got to be a really cool place to play. They've got 90-something thousand seats in that stadium, packed, and every person is screaming at the top of their lungs.
4: All right, TJ, let me put you on the spot here and ask for your prediction for this week. What do you think is going to happen in the game?
2: So I was looking at the Vegas odds this morning, and I think didn't it come out that Florida was favored by four. I believe so. Have you seen that yet? Okay, so uh, Vegas is usually really close. And I went on record before Matty Mock was suspended saying, if you're going to bet on any Mizzou game this year, first of all, don't bet on the game itself, just bet the under. Because they can't score any points, and the other team is probably not going to score many on this defense. Um, so if I don't even know what the over-under is, but I would still probably bet the under because the defense can I mean that Missouri defense can play ball they've got really good players and somehow this defensive line can still really play even after losing for two consecutive years they've lost I mean four of the top 10 linemen that have probably ever come through the school you had an all-american and Michael Sam you had a um, gosh even the year before that Sheldon Richardson 2012 you had a first round or tackle then the next year, you have Michael Sam in a second rounder and Coney Ely who's still playing for Carolina. And then this past year, you had Marcus Golden, who had a sack this week on Nick Foles going the second round. And you had Shane Ray, who would have been a top-ten pick if he didn't get busted smoking weed uh, the week of the draft. He's playing for Denver, and I think he had his first sack. So you lose all those guys, and you still have arguably the best defensive line in the SEC. So I think that's something to look out for. But a prediction itself... I'm a Missouri alumni, so don't listen to anything I say. I would I would say Missouri wins 17 to 13, maybe 17, 13. That's my official prediction that Missouri fans are going to love and Florida fans are going to say I'm an idiot. And it's fully Homer. That's 100% guessing with my heart, not my head. What, is not your, what, it, what does your head tell
1: you in 15 seconds or less?
2: My head says uh, Florida just scored 38 points on old Miss, who I think may be a pretender, not a contender, but they also just beat Alabama. So Florida probably rolls 27 to 10.
1: Okay, good stuff. Well, TJ Mo joining us on the program today. Thanks so much for being with us. You can find him on Twitter at Mo 28 He's always full of uh, insights and, and good commentary, so you won't miss out on that one. TJ, thanks again for being with us. We enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, thanks, fellas. Anytime. Good luck this year. Some
4: fun and candid thoughts from TJ Moe. That was fun having him on. Uh, Let's play a little game here, James. Give me the yardage, passing yardage totals for both Will Greer and Drew Locke. Will the Thrill, 275, Drew Locke, 150. What do you got? I'm going to go a little lower on both these guys. I'm going to go about 230 for Will and about 120 for Drew Locke. How many sacks are we going to have and how many sacks are they going to have? I think they're going to get a little pressure on Will. Um... I think that's going to even out some. I think they're going to sack him four times. It's going to be kind of a step back for the O-line. And I think we're going to put a ton of pressure. I'm going to say we're going to
1: have like five or six sacks. Is it five or is it six? I'll go six. (laughs) I'll go big. (laughs) I like it. I'm going to go two for them. I think Will gets rid of the ball really quickly. I think he throws the ball on time, so we'll minimize their, their pressure. I think they will get pressure. I think we're going to get four. I think we'll be in the backfield all day, but I imagine their game plan is going to really be centered around getting rid of the ball very quickly. That could be true. Especially after what they watched us do to Chad Kelly.
4: All right. Well, this has been really great. Thanks to TJ Moe and Kewan Ratliff.
1: Appreciate having them on. And yeah, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. And as always, you can check us out on Facebook. It's the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I implored you to join our Twitter, follow our Twitter account so that we continue to provide you with a guest that you want to hear. So go ahead and hop on and do that. We look forward to returning next Monday with episode seven. You can always get our podcast every Monday from your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Keep the reviews coming. We appreciate it. And we're five-star rated on all the platforms now, thanks to you guys. And uh, we'll sign off. Hopefully the Gators get a big W on Saturday. See you next week.
5: That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff.
0: Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.
5: When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.